We are in the next section, which is Jesus' identity in the nature of discipleship, which is chapter 9, verses 1 through 50. This is the last section of the second major division, and it is where it is the pivot where we're going to pivot from Jesus' ministry in the Galilee and then his journey to Jerusalem. So at the end of this section, Jesus will point his face towards Jerusalem and begin to head out. And this will officially end the first third of the book. So the focus of this section is on Christology and discipleship. One cannot embody authentic discipleship unless they correctly understand the true identity and work of Jesus. Yet, one cannot correctly understand Jesus' identity and work without discipleship. The appropriate response to Jesus is growing an understanding of who he is and obedience grounded in active faith. In his own time, Jesus was the misunderstood Messiah, but the readers of Luke see what Jesus' contemporaries did not see, that Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem and die and rise again. This is the new focus that's going to begin to gradually evolve or transition and shift to in chapter 9. So chapter 9, verse 1. After this, Jesus called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not take any extra tuning. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the area. And wherever they do not receive you, as they leave the town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Then they departed and went throughout the villages, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. So these disciples have been with Jesus long enough that he's ready to give them the ability to do, to put into action what he's done. Now notice that over and over and over again, we keep seeing two things to Jesus' ministry, his power and authority. We have seen his power over diseases, over the demons, and over nature. And then we see his authority to heal people, his authority to forgive sins, his authority to interpret the scriptures, unlike any other person before him has ever done. His authority to speak on behalf of Yahweh. And now, this man who has demonstrated far greater authority and power than anybody else before him, is now delegating his power to his disciples and his authority to the disciples. So everything that we've seen Jesus do has now been given to the disciples to do the same way. And so we will not necessarily see them speak in the Gospel of Luke, except when they're putting their feet in their mouths. But what we will see is that they will demonstrate power. And they will be amazed by it as they do this. And we will be told that they are speaking. When we get to Acts, that's where we're going to begin to actively see them demonstrate power and speak with great authority. This is their first task. They are to go out. And they are to go with nothing. They are to be completely trusting in God that he's going to provide for all their needs and, all their, and protect them from any obstacle that might come in their way. Now remember, this isn't completely new to them because Jesus has already been living this and they have been following him and living this way with him as well. So they're used to not having a home and going from this place to this place and not even knowing where they're going next because Jesus got to control the itinerary. 
But what is different now is that they're going to do this without Jesus there. They're, they no longer have Jesus to turn to. They no longer have Jesus to follow. They no longer have Jesus to fix their problems. They no longer have, like, I don't know what to do. And they turn to him even though they're supposed to do it. So now they're on their own, but technically they're not because they should have learned that lesson from Jesus asleep in the boat. That just because he's not consciously aware or there, they should be able to still be aware that God is with them. So they go out. And this is the point. Remember, God, Jesus could have just hoarded his power and authority and just said, like, I am it. But like always in creation with Adam and Eve, he delegated his kingship to them and allowed them to rule over. And so many of the things that we see Jesus do, the implication is since the disciples go out and do the same things, the implication is that Adam and Eve had this authority as well. That when he told them to rule and subdue creation, this is he meant this, the ability to prevent disease from coming into the garden, prevent death from coming into the garden, the ability to control nature to a certain extent, to rule over the animals and subdue them, the ability to speak authoritative as the image of God. The problem is that they chose not to do that. And so there's an extent that Jesus is restoring this back to us as his image bearers. But they all, he also makes it clear that they are to, if people reject them, they are to shake the dust off their feet and walk away. What this means is that this is a judgment against them. Dust is symbolic of judgment. It's from the dust you've come to the dust you've returned. The serpent will crawl on his belly and it looks like he's eating the dust of the earth. Dust represents death. It's the grave. And so the idea is that they're casting judgment on him. And the feet, we talked about this, the sole of the feet is like the most obscene, gross thing in the ancient world because one, most people already think feet are kind of gross. And, and then two, you're walking through like the dirt and the mud and the, the animal poop and all that kind of stuff. And this is left for the lowliest of servants to clean your feet. And so like in the ancient world, to take your sole of your foot and face it towards somebody is considered like worse than flicking them off. So by doing this, they're not only showing their feet to the person, but they're shaking the dust off into their house, which is a form of judgment. And it's not just like you served me bad tea or we had a bad political conversation, but it's that you have rejected who God is. You've rejected his message. You've rejected his authority. And so there's a sense of judgment there. And he wants them to understand how serious it was that they have rejected this. How serious is this? To reject my disciple, to reject my image, is to reject me as well. And so this is the point that's being communicated. And so he's giving the chance to put into practice what they have seen him do in his own life. And that's his desire for us, ultimately. And once again, he has sent them out, and he's still physically on the earth to give them the chance to learn what it's like so that when he sends them out and acts, and he's no longer physically on the earth, that they'll realize that they can still do the same things. Verse 7, Now Herod, the Tetriarch, or governor, heard about everything that was, or sorry, or client king. This is the client king, meaning a king that has a greater authority above him. Heard about everything that was happening, and he was thoroughly perplexed, because some people were saying that John had been raised from the dead, while others were saying that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had risen. Herod said, I had John beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? 
So Herod wanted to learn about Jesus. This does two things. First, it shows us that despite all the things that Jesus is doing, it's still not really clear who he is to all the people. The, the, the rumors that are spreading throughout the land are not completely accurate. So you've got some accurate news over here and some fake news over here and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and even in the ancient world, with the amazingness of who Jesus is, he, Herod is not really clear who this guy is, what exactly is going on. And so there, it just shows you how disconnected they are from world events or national events and how hard it is to know. And I know we used to think, oh, we're so much more aware and so much in touch with what's happening around the world now because we have newspapers and social media and all that kind of stuff. But I also think the last couple of years have probably revealed to us how much we really don't know and how much we can't really trust and how twisted everything is and how selective everything is. That kind of maybe gives us a better appreciation about how it kind of was back then, too. Um, they, they were just as ignorant as we are today of what's going on. And so that's the first point that it makes is that the higher ups that have power still are not completely clear what's going on. It also shows how ignorant the higher powers up are of what's truly going on, how to, out of touch that they are with the lower people, the people down there. And that's one of the points the Gospels are making is that the higher elites are always out of touch with the everyday normal people. So I just saw this clip. It was funny and heartbreaking at the same time. So you guys know the view. Sorry to step on your toes, but it's a horrible thing. But the view, there was this clip of this one leading in the view talking about how horrific and how sad and devastating it is that Ukraine's being bombed and people are going to refugee camps and, and billions of people are going to be like, um, she said billions, but it wasn't really that many, but are going to be like put out of their homes and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, oh, wow, they're actually like being sympathetic. And then the redheaded girl, the, the uh, Joy Bear, I think it is, she was like, yeah, this is horrible. Europe is, Western Europe is just devastating. The other one was like, yeah. And you thought something profound was going to come out of her mouth. And she's like, I've been trying to get to Europe on a vacation for a long time, but I can't because of COVID. And, and, and now, like, how will I ever get to Italy now that Ukraine is under this mess and that kind of stuff? Like, this is devastating for me. And it was like, what? What? Yes. Like, I've heard, but that one was just mind-blowing to me. And if, like, just how out of touch that these people really are. And that's the point that's being made here. Not only is it hard to know what's really going on, but they're not even really making an effort. Like, he's just like, oh, I really would like to know who this guy is. Another piece of chicken? And, and that's really what, <laughs> well, remember, Herod died in excess of 400 pounds. So, excess of 400 pounds. So that wasn't really too <laughs> inaccurate. But the other thing that this is showing is it's foreshadowing the eventual meetup of Herod and Jesus. And even after all those years, he's still going to be completely out of touch of what's been happening in his own country. And he's going to misunderstand it and basically just use Jesus as an entertainment and then send him off to be somebody else's problem because he doesn't fully get the gravity of all of this. Chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything that they had done. And he took them with them, and they withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. 
But when the crowds found out, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. And now the day began to draw to close. So the twelve disciples said to Jesus, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and food because we are in an isolated place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they replied, We have no more than five loaves of two and two fish unless we go and buy food for these people. Now about 5,000 were there. And then he said to the disciples, Have them sit down in groups, about 50 each. So they did as Jesus directed, and the people all sat down. Now this is very important to understand. Because, here's the thing, it's very important to understand that the very beginning of this section, verse 10, it says, The apostles returned, and they told Jesus everything that they had done. They told, they were excited. Other gospels show how excited they are. Like the, the demons like obeyed our words and, and people were healed. And th- this is amazing. We, we did this. We did this. Like this is exciting. Jesus takes them off on their own and they try to have a private moment, but they can't because the people are just like, ooh, I got to follow you. And so Jesus begins to teach them and he teaches these 5,000 people which remember, this is men only, so this does not include the women and children, which probably there weren't as many, a lot of children, but they're all there. And so they're all there, and then they realize these people are hungry. We need to send them away so they can go to the cafes and stuff and get some food or go back home. And Jesus says, you feed them. I know we've heard this story a lot, but it's not until you read it like all in context you realize they just got done doing miracles. And they just got done being excited about it. And the first thing out of their mouth, literally the next day that they've gotten back from this, like, outing that they've had for several weeks, is, we can't do this. There's only so much bread and so much fish. Like, how in the world are we going to solve this problem? They can't transfer. This is one thing that we're not very good at, is transference. And child development, kids are actually, they have absolutely, it's impossible for them to do this. They, they, they lean back in one chair and fall over backwards and hit their head. And you're like, see, that's why you shouldn't do that. But little kids in child development actually cannot transfer that to the other chair on the other side of the table. Like they're, they're literally, that's why you're like, how many times do I have to tell you? Well, for every single chair that there is in the house, literally, because they don't know how to do that transference. <laughs> But I feel like as we get older, we ha- we're not really that much better. <laughs> like we can like on a physics level, but not necessarily on a life lesson kind of level. Like if this relationship went sour because I did this, then that means that probably that's going to go sour in the next relationship if I continue to do this behavior. But we don't do that very well. This is the point here as humans, we don't do transference very well. The scenery is different. Jesus is now here. It's like I, everything I've learned has gone out the window. And it shows you that even though they have learned so much and they've been able to accomplish so much and they have exercised authority and power, they still have so far to go. And that's exactly us too. And you're going to see the next too. At first you're going to like, wow, they really got all together. Everything's great. And they're sharing everything and did it. And then by the time you get to chapter 3, there's already big problems, and they're getting in conflict, and Paul is angry with Mark, and then Peter's angry with Paul, and it's like, it's just, we're not very good at this kind of stuff. They don't know how to do it. And Jesus says, fine. Now, in some other gospel, he's a little bit more like, gosh, 
dang it, people. <laughs> what the heck? So then he took five loaves of bread and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. He lifts this bread up, and he lifts it up like a priest. This is what the priest would do in the, the temple, in the tabernacle, is that when you were given, gave a grain offering to the priest, they would hold it up in the air, and they would wave it to God. And not like the wave at a football game, but they would like push it towards God and pull it back and push it towards God as an offering to physically represent what they're doing. Then they would break it, and they would throw on the altar and burn it. And, that kind of stuff. and then they would take a portion of the grain home and break it and eat it. He's acting like a priest here as he blesses it. But the other thing is, there must be something unique about the way that Jesus did this. A way that he physically did it that they have never seen anybody do it before. His own particular tick or um, particular way of doing it. Because he's going to do this again at Passover in the upper room. And that's going to be a very significant moment of breaking the bread and that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is when we get to Luke chapter 24 and we get the road to Emmaus and they don't recognize him, but then they get in the house and it says, but when they saw him break the bread, they realized it was him. Which says that there was something unique about the way that Jesus did this compared to the priest or anybody else that they've ever seen. He had his, I don't know if it was the, the way he spoke, the, 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 the actual physical mannerisms, the look on his face. I don't know what it was, but there was, there's something unique about the way that Jesus did this compared to other people. Of course, this symbolically represents the provision of God in the, the wilderness. So in Exodus chapter 16, they're whining and complaining about having no bread and no meat and no food, and God provides it for them. He provides it for them, and they, they have this abundance, and he says now, when they get to Exodus chapters um, 25 through 32, the, or 31, the instructions for building the tabernacle. He gives them the requirement that every single week they're to bake 12 loaves of bread, the priests are, and put them on the table of showbread to remind them of the provision of God for all their daily needs. And he's going to kick back into this in the Lord's Prayer, give us our day, our daily, or give us this day, our daily bread, in order to represent that God is always faithful to take care of them, prepare for them, and, and, and provide for them. This is a direct allusion to that. Just as God multiplied the bread for you in the wilderness to provide your needs, I am providing the bread for you and multiplying it to provide your needs. This is a calling card. And he's saying, I am God, and he's connecting himself to that. And he's saying, I am the Messiah, and I have come. The 12 baskets is significant because remember, there were 12 loaves of bread that were placed on the priestly table each week. But now we don't have just 12 loaves. Now we have 12 baskets, which is Jesus' way of showing I'm greater than the priesthood. I provide a greater provision than the priesthood did through, or God did through the priests in the garden, not the garden, the wilderness, sorry. In Joel chapter 2, verse 19, and then again in Joel chapter 2, verse 24, and in Jeremiah 31, 12, these three passages... Joel chapter 2, verse 19. Joel chapter 2, verse 24. Jeremiah 31, verse 12. 
These are three very important passages that zero in on the fact that wine, grain, and olive oil are extremely important to the coming of the Messiah. Grain, wine, and olive oil. All throughout the First Testament, God keeps emphasizing these three things as important. These aren't the only verses in the entire Bible. These are just three key verses. There are many passages in Deuteronomy that talk about how God will open up the floodgates and he will bless Israel if they're obedient with the rains and there will be abundance of wine and there will be abundance of grain and there will be abundance of olive oil. And, then, and he also mentions other times, figs and dates and that kind of stuff. So these things are constantly mentioned over again. And even the prophets, he'll talk about, because of your sins, I have laid waste to your wine and your vineyards and your, your crops and your grain and, and your olive oils and your trees and that kind of stuff. So these three things have been repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the First Testament. They represent life. And specifically in these three areas, grain represents the, the essentials of life, just life in its essence. Because grain is the staple for life. It's the thing that you do need. Everybody needs grain to stay alive. Everybody needs grain to eat. It is the staple of their agricultural community and cultures of the ancient world. And so even at the most poor level, they need grain. So represent life. The wine represented the abundance of life. The, the joy that comes with life. The excess of life. Because wine is coming from the grapevine, and very few people could afford to actually have grapevines. I mean, it took three years before a grapevine actually begins to produce grapes. And then it takes like a good year or two for the grapes to actually taste good. And then it takes a few years for the grapes to actually turn into good wine. And so you're, we're ta you're talking about a decade at least before you're going to get wine that's actually good. And this is why generational vineyards are so important, because it takes so much work to prune them into something exceptional. And so this costs money. This costs time. This is over and beyond just surviving. This is having the extra time in your life to attend to vineyards, to be able to have the extra money to have these things. So this represents the abundance of life. And therefore, if you have an abundance of life, you have the ability to relax some more. You have the ability to enjoy life a little bit more rather than just slaving it out in the fields and trying to survive. And, of course, wine is connected to relaxation and joy and that kind of stuff. And then olive oil represented spiritual life because olive oil was also a very expensive, very time-consuming thing in order to make. And there were three stages of making olive oil that produced three kinds of olive oils. The olive oil that you would just use for like cooking, the olive oil you use for eating, and the olive oil that you use for medicinal purposes. And so this, because olive oil also had healing properties to it, it became associated with life as well. But it also became associated with spiritual life because this is the olive oil that is poured on the king and the priest and the prophet when they become anointed through the Holy Spirit. And so these three things represent the three aspects of life. Life in physical sense, the abundance of life socially, and, and, uh, and then the spiritual life that you would have. Every time he talks about these being provided if they obey or being taken away if they disobey is an all-encompassing symbolic metaphor for life in all of its forms. So when we get to Joel chapter 2, he talks about, and that day... I will bring you back out of exile, and I will bring an abundance of grain, wine, and olive oil. 
And then he says, I will pour out my spirit upon you and all of you. Well, free and slave, man and woman, will have the spirit poured upon them. And then he goes into that. And then in verse 24, right after that, he says, and I will give you grain and wine and olive oil. So he bookends this prophecy of the coming of the spirit, the new covenant, with the promise of these three things. And then when we get to Jeremiah 31, 12, he does the same thing. He very specifically begins with, I'm going to bring, restore your grain, your wine, and your olive oil. And then in Jeremiah 31, then he goes on and talks about all these things are going to happen. And that day that he brings them back in the land. And then Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, and on that day, I will make a new covenant with you that will not be like the old covenant that I made with your forefathers or broke it and walk away from it. But it will be a new covenant where everyone will know me from the least of you to the greatest of you, because my law will be written on your hearts, and you will no longer call me master, but you will call me husband. And then he goes on and begins to talk about it more. What makes this unique is he very specifically, in a, it seems like a much more intentional way, pronounces the coming of these three things in direct connection with the coming of the new covenant. And many scholars have then assumed that just like we have signs of each covenant, the tree of life was assigned the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision was assigned the, sorry, tree of life was assigned to the Adamic covenant. Um, circumcision was assigned to the Abrahamic. The rainbow was assigned to the Noahic covenant. Um, and the Sabbath was assigned to the, the Mosaic covenant. As we go through these, everyone has a sign. In the upper room, Jesus says, this is bread, my body, and my wine, or my blood, wine, broken for you. This is a sign of the new covenant. So he makes it very clear that he's going back to Joel and Jeremiah and saying, yes, these are the signs of the covenant. This is very important for you to understand because when Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 2, the first miracle that he does is multiplying of wine, an abundance of wine in the land. That's the sign of the new covenant. That's That's the sign that the Messiah is going to come. But what also makes this interesting is remember in that exact same context, Jeremiah 31, 12, he says abundance of grain, wine, and olive oil. But then he goes on and says, after 31, you will no longer call me master, you will call me husband. So his first miracle was also at a wedding. So he's announcing the groom has come as well. But then he takes the water that was only used for ceremonial purposes. You're only allowed to use this water for the cleansing of sins. The, 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 the washing, actually, so you, would, you would sacrifice the animal that would remove your guilt of sin, your punishment that you were no longer under, and then you go to the wash basin and cleanse yourself to remove the actual defilement of sin. The blood on your hands, so to speak, like Macbeth. Okay, out spot. That idea. Then he comes in, and the water of this was always used for priesthood and cleansing. But water has never been associated with the Messiah or the New Covenant. And wine has always been associated with kingship. Because remember in Genesis 49, the first prophecy of the coming king, he said, and the king, Judah, a ruler will come from, from you, and the scepter will come to him, and it will stay with him. And he will tie his donkey to the choice vine, wine, his colt to the branch, wine. He will bathe his garments in wine, and he will, his eyes will be darker than wine, meaning that his kingdom, 
his character and his personality will be characteristic of joy and the abundance of life. And Jesus says, I have come to make your joy complete and to give you life to the fullest. This Genesis 49 makes it very clear that the Messiah is going to be connected to wine. And then the prophets say, wine is the coming of the new covenant. And then Jesus comes along and he turns the water into wine. But wine is connected to the Messiah and water is connected to priesthood. And so he comes into this wedding and he takes the water of priesthood and the ceremonial cleansing and he turns it into wine, which is symbolic of kingship, and saying that I am both. And this goes back to Zechariah chapter 3 when he says to you, I will give you a branch coming up out of David, kingship, and he will be the priest over my people. And it's the first time that God directly connects kingship and, well, the first time the prophets do. Psalm 110 did too, and we'll talk about that later. But then the prophets did it here where kingship and, prophet, kingship and priesthood were connected together. And that's significant. So basically this is God's calling card. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's almost like if he had business cards, that's what he was doing. Like, I'm multiplying the wine at a wedding. And I, I'm doing with priesthood kind of ideas with kingship me metaphors. If you knew the scriptures, you would recognize me. You would recognize me. That's what he's doing. So now he does the same thing here with the grain. And he's multiplying the grain. And many scholars believe that the water and the wine thing was a one-time thing, but the multiplying the bread was something he did in multiple places, multiple occasions, multiple speaking arrangements. And so what he's doing is constantly showing abundance of grain, abundance of grain. I am here. You should know me. You should know me. And you're like, okay, but where's the olive oil? The olive oil doesn't come until Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples. Because remember, only priests, kings, and prophets got the anointing of the olive oil. But now... In Joel chapter 2, I will pour my spirit on all people. That's happening in Acts chapter 2. And Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 to say this is happening today. And the, basically the idea is that we are all getting the olive oil poured on our heads right now at this moment. Because now we're all kings and priests and prophets. Because we're in Christ who is the ultimate king, priest, and prophet is between these three passages, the first miracle of water and wine, then the multiplication of the grain, that he ties it into the Last Supper, but then that makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to come in Acts chapter 2. And now we have our abundance of grain, wine, and olive oil. And what he's showing is that this is who I am. And if you knew the scriptures, you would recognize me. And this is why it's so important that the disciples really pay attention on this day. Mm -hmm. They've already failed the test. They went out and did all these things and passed all the quizzes. And then they came to the test and they forgot all their quizzes. <laughs> but now he's giving them a much more powerful reminder of who he is. And the question is, well, they get it. Well, they pay attention to it. 